Hey, you made it past the pro wrestling, around the basketball, didn't get distracted by the Rick and Morty memes, and that means you're inside my caged mind. Hi, I'm Micah Frankel, and this is an MMA craze zone. Sorry, I missed last week. Unfortunately, due to some severe back pain, took a week off, but I still want to touch on last week's topics, because you know, there were some very important occurrences that happened in the world of MMA. I'm talking about like precedents being set with commissions. You know we're going to get to the PFL. And that's where I want to start right away. Fabricio Verdum against Henan Fajeda. What a mess that turned out to be. Verdum gets the fight to the ground. Then gets put on his back. Locks up a triangle. Looks like he's in good position to get the submission. And you see, is it a tap? Is he searching for Redoom's head? Later, it would turn out that it would be said this is a tap from Henan Ferreira. That in the moment, I felt like Ferreira was searching as he's trapped in the triangle, left arm trapped, head down with his right arm that he was searching for Redoom's head. Coming up his back, trying to look for it. That was considered to be a tap later. Now, on fight night, we know it's Fajeda uses that right hand once he finds the head to start pummeling in hammer fist. That stopped Verdum, get the first round TKO. Verdum later complains that the referee missed the tap. Well, from the angles I've seen, Verdum, when the tap happens, takes his left arm and starts to pull down on the back of Hen and Fahada's head. I guess maybe saying you tapped and I know that you tapped where the ref can't see it. So I'm pulling down the submission to try to lock it in deeper to make you tap more vigorously. I took it as a Verdum going to lock and pull down the head. Trying to tighten up the submission because he had not gotten the tap. Now after the TKO win... By Fajeda, the New Jersey Athletic Commission reviews the tape. They go back and they declare it a no contest. I haven't seen anything from the commission fully explaining this. We do know that Fajeda goes from six points and a first round TKO to it's a no contest. And Verdum and Fajeda both have one point. It's a possibility at this point that you could see, or at this time, that you could see a rematch between Fajeda and Verdum. Obviously, they have unfinished business. My only kerfuffle, my only hesitation in being fully on board with that automatic rematch is there's two regular season events for each weight class in the PFL. And you're going to waste your entire season just so that we can get Fajeda Verdum squared away? I mean, there's a chance that another no contest, neither guy advances. I kind of like the storyline or the narrative that you would move on with the matchmaking that you had previously been expecting to do with this being a season and then cross your fingers that these two meet down the line in the playoffs. Or it's something automatically to think about for the 2022 season. The, con- the fight is ruled a no contest. And I'm guessing that we're getting a no contest 
because the commission doesn't want to fully say that the referee was wrong and did his job wrong, but I guess they're saying that there was enough confusion or enough visual evidence that there was something missed. But if there was something missed, you missed the, the tap. Okay, it happens. To me, that means it's a first-round submission win for Fabrice Overdue. Either there was a tap and it's a submission win, or there wasn't a tap and it's a TKO win. I, I don't get this no contest. Well, we're going to go against the judge's decision, because or the referee's decision, because it's not final. The referee ruled a first-round TKO for Hannah Fata. So we will tell him he's wrong, but we're not going to reverse it in the other favor because we believe the tap happened, but because it wasn't acknowledged, that that's the NBA two-minute report almost. When you think about it, I'm switching off to basketball, where the referees and the league acknowledge the fouls, but in that moment, you're really like, it happened. We can't go back and do anything about it, but yeah, they missed it. We will be transparent, but we're not going to do anything about it. It was something to acknowledge and a, a point to talk to later. Hey, you know... No, Keith Peterson, you missed that one. Okay, all right, thanks. I'll, I'll try to work on that aspect, I guess, again, is what they're saying. Be more aware of all the hands. I still see it's just a muddled situation. Who won, who didn't win? It's, it's that simple. It even happened again this weekend. You know, the UFC event and Caitlin Shikagian versus Viviana Araujo. There was a point where Ada Ujo has a mounted one-armed guillotine. And it looks like, and obviously this was picked up by the truck and by several people on Twitter. I retweeted a couple people that thought that there was a butt tap from Shikagian to Ada during this one-armed choke. That was not considered a submission. That was not considered a tap. And at this point, I haven't heard anybody talking about that tap and that fight being reviewed by the Texas Commission. Different commissions, I get it. Can we get some consistency in the sport, people? That's really hard to say. We're just going to blame state-run athletic commissions for inconsistency. Because that's what it apparently is. They're saying it was just one touch. And Shikagian was searching for her other hand to try to lock it in while in that position. While trying to pull Araujo closer while she was mounting. Shikagian. Well, in the other aspect, you're like, Frada, he couldn't have been using his hand to look for Verdum's head. He was tapping. I don't even see the consistency in the argument from the media members making it. And that's what I'm looking for. Is just some consistency. Why are we having the trouble with this same situation? Different commissions, different promotions. Yes, PFL, yes, UFC. Yes, the only commonality is that they are both on ESPN, but it is a point to be made, and there's definitely something to be looked at. What does consist or not consist of as a tap? Also, while we're getting into it, we always see the rules that are displayed at the beginning of the UFC event. We talk about, and they talk about on the telecast, you have to aim for the ear. That's not exactly true. It's the mohawk. Could we actually have the real rules 
be read off so people have a deeper understanding of what they're actually watching. That's a foul. No, that isn't a foul. Is that a foul? Consistency, transparency, is it that hard? Probably is. I'm probably asking for way too much. Asking for a lot and making a statement, though. Making a bold statement. That's what Kayla Harrison did. Dominating in her first fight, in her first fight of the season for the PFL. And then the talk comes. And every combat sports athlete should be as upset as Kayla Harrison is. YouTubers, random celebrities, athletes from other successful athletic endeavors just think they can jump in the ring, jump in the cage. They've already been a high-level athlete. Why not become a fighter? Why not cash in on that payday? And truly, all the martial artists that have put a lifetime of work in the martial arts, in honing these skills and crafts, and then are going on these worldwide platforms to display their skills should be insulted by those other people that are. It's that easy for me to jump over. I can make money. I can become a bigger attraction than you. It's very insulting, and everybody should be as perturbed as Kayla Harrison. But then she takes us in a walk in a different direction. I don't believe that there's anyone on the PFL roster in that women's lightweight division that is on the same level as Kayla Harrison. Hey, and there is nothing wrong with why not stay with the PFL forever as long as they are offering a million dollars per championship. Who cares about the level of competition? Who cares about the legacy, the gas bags, the people like me who are going to rank you one day under Amanda Nunez, under Chris Cyborg, if you were to continue down that path. Would it matter if you're stinking rich and your family is set up with generational wealth? Maybe it would because you're a true competitor and it seems to be burning at Kayla Harrison's craw as she has announced now that she is UFC level and UFC ready. Unbeaten, and I believe it's 8-0 right now. Maybe this last one was her ninth. I apologize, guys. I'm not looking at her record at the moment but to think for Kayla Harrison there's an opportunity for four more fights this year and that's the beautiful thing about the PFL system is with getting into the playoffs making it to the championship you get that experience and you get that cage time it is 9-0 looking it up now Harrison is 9-0 coming off of the first round win Nothing but straight destructive. And her entire career so far, all nine fights inside of the PFL. Really, the most dangerous fight was the second one, taking on Josette Cotton, who I've had the opportunity to talk to. That one was 1-0 and versus 8-1 and right out the gate. Then Laura Prosecco, who's back in the tournament again, 11-2 and versus 3-0. and You're thinking about it by now. By the time we get to the end of the season, you could have a Kayla Harrison... Who is 13-0? Is she UFC ready then? Let's be honest. Let's just cut through the jungle. Harrison is obviously UFC ready now. And she is obviously not UFC ready now. 9-0. Two-time 
judo Olympian, dominant finisher here so far in her MMA career. Gets on top of people, key locks, arm bars, vicious ground and pound, doing whatever she wants to do. Obviously, UFC ready from all those skills, from that caliber of pedigree. Being a member of American Top Team, obviously the right eyes have already been on her. And Kayla Harrison thus set herself apart from every woman in MMA when she immediately signed with the World Series of Fighting, was working as a sideline reporter and analyst before transitioning into being a competitor, getting her career fully going once she had her training to the point where she was comfortable fighting. And having been with the PFL now, you're obviously not ready. You're somebody else's fighter. And I think Dana White has made it pretty clear that unless you're vigorously antagonizing him, excuse me, don't know what happened just to my voice right there. Unless you're vigorously antagonizing Dana, he's not really going to be talking about you. And he's obviously not going to talk about people in other promotions. Michael Chandler was not UFC ready until he was a free agent. Chris Cyborg was UFC ready when she was willing to make the weight that the UFC wanted her to make and when she was willing to fight at the number that the UFC wanted to pay. UFC ready can mean a whole lot of different things. Harrison is under contract to another promotion. The UFC is obviously, obviously, in no shape or form, willing to do a partnership or a cross-promotional deal. They did it a long time ago with Pride, and I believe a lot of that to do was to get into Japan, was to start to meet the right people. I believe it inevitably led to the UFC being able to buy Pride out, was making that business connection. But when you talk about the PFL, Ray Cepho, people that are already involved with Disney, Dana White doesn't need to get to know them. He already knows them. Same thing goes for Bellator now with Scott Proker. They're working with the people at Viacom. People that Dana White has already dealt with, Dana White already knows. There's no need to make a relationship where you already know that you blocked each other's numbers. Where you got two phones. For Ray Zaffo, he's got the manager phone and he's probably got the promoter phone. Because he's also a coach. You know, he's worked with guys like Kevin Lee, a lot of people there at Extreme Couture. So there is an echelon and an avenue for the PFL, Ray Cepho, Dana White, the UFC, for them to converse, for them to talk. But I don't think that ever paradoxes into a conversation about Kayla Harrison and, hey, why don't we put her against Amanda Nunez? Because on the other side, you wonder how that conversation plays out in the gym. Now, when I first heard of Amanda Nunez as a Strikeforce fighter, she was training out of the MMA Masters there in Florida before transitioning over to American Top Team, which I believe she was already at before Kayla Harrison walked in the door. Now, we've seen from 
who carries Amanda Nunez on their shoulder, shoulders out of the octagon, that Nunez, the lioness, is a member of the Conan uh, Silvero portion of American Top Team. Well, Kayla Harrison, I believe, works with Mike Brown. I don't know how it works in Florida, how American Top Team has it. We do know that the distraction between teammates did lead to Jorge Masvidal is still an American Top Team, and Colby Covington is now over at MMA Masters. That would lead you to believe that sometimes maybe these teammate versus teammate situations aren't going to be able to be worked out so smoothly. And you got to wonder, what is that like? What was the intention? Judo Olympian, Kayla Harrison, transitioning now from one sport where she wanted to be the best into another now in mixed martial arts. And this brings up the question, I'm not believing that they're best friends, I don't believe that they ever cornered each other, but how close was Nunez and Harrison? Because now we've gotten to a point where Harrison, even though they're in different promotions, is looking across the map and realizing she wants to be the best, and to go and do that, you have to take down the GOAT, the lioness. A person that's on the same mats, working with similar training partners and coaches. And it just brings back these horrible memories to me of John Jones, Rashad Evans, a feeling of how that tore apart the bond that the group had at the Jackson Wink Gym back in those days. And to think, I don't know if American Top Team with how they have coaches set up, how they have their groups divided, when they have practices, if they already have the protocols or the procedures in place to say, no, this doesn't affect us as a group. We're here to train together, but to stab each other, well, to fight each other tooth and nail to be at the top. I can't say stab each other in the back because I don't know enough about the conversations. Did Nunez ever share tricks of the trade with Harrison? Was she inviting and welcoming and at what point did Harrison say, I am the baddest woman on the planet, and she wants to say that, and that is the direct shot at her teammate, at somebody that flies the same flag as her and is carrying around two title belts, the greatest multiple division champion, the greatest champ champ that MMA has ever seen, because she doesn't just stay in the one division, she goes to it back and forth between the two, 35-45, Nunez is not backing down, and that makes Amanda special. But at one point, did Harrison look up, look at her and say, well, I want what you got. I'm coming after you. And I'm not saying it's like across town. It's across the mat where she's making this point and this emphasis. And then if they are ever to meet, the weirdest thing is there's not just a thank you, Amanda, for letting me be in the gym or be on the mat, in the gym where you're already the world champion, two divisions. Why are we bringing in more girls from a state weight class? Well, kind of. Harrison's at 55, now trying to get down to 45. We saw her do it for a one-off for Invicta. Presumably, she'd be able to do it after this PFL season if she is a free agent, if she is a free agent, to then be able to transition over to the women's featherweight division in the UFC, which, again, you would owe Amanda Nunez a bit of gratitude if any of that's even able to happen if you're Kayla Harrison. Because Dana White has already said he would rather be done 
with 145 pounds in the women's featherweight division. Amanda Nunez is keeping that division around because she wants it around. That point has already been made. So if Akela Harrison is even able to step foot into the octagon with Amanda Nunez to fight for the featherweight title, it's only because Nunez is allowing it. Because at any point, she could say, you're right, Dana. I've accomplished enough. This division is depleted. It lacks depth. Even if you look at the Bellator top 10 rankings for their 145-pounders, it's not some pretty records. I'm not here to judge because I've never got in the octagon, not a competitor like that. But nobody is chasing down Habib Nurmagomedov's unbeaten record, if I could be so kind as to say. If you're Harrison, it brings up the question to me, why is she not calling out Chris Cyborg? Why are you not calling out Bellator? Why are you looking in the room and across the map? I understand that Nunez is the GOAT. That if you want a Ric Flair to be the man, you got to beat the man. But there's already somebody who's conquered Strikeforce, the UFC, Invicta, now picking up that Bellator title, drifting gold, four different championships. If you're Kayla Harrison, you're already training at American Top Team with Amanda Nunez or alongside her in the same building, around the same people, why would you not focus on the other champion? Chris Cyborg is there. Chris Cyborg is the other person. The other person right now. You're talking about the best featherweights of all time? It's a pretty small list in the women's division. Talk about women's best featherweights ever. It's Amanda Nunez. It's Amanda Nunez, Chris Cyborg, Jermaine Durandame, Kayla Harrison. There's only four so far. You want to throw Holly Holm in there, but she fought basically at Bantamweight. This division has not been that deep. So to go right from clearing out everything you got to do in the PFL, why are you even looking in-house, which is bothering me, when you could look over to California, you could look to Bellator, having their events up in Connecticut, and you could call out a bona fide superstar, Chris Cyborg. That would be the hurdle to cross. That would be the wall to break through. That would be the last peg in the board before getting to Nunez. The last villain before the final boss would be taking out Chris Cyborg. And I just find it curious the way Kayla Harrison is attacking her to-do list in MMA. I again would go Cyborg and then go Nunez. Is a cut a finish or not? I, I think it is. I think it is. But it's interesting to hear the debate and to hear the spin. Bellator, their lightweight division, we've seen that be stagnant without Patricio Pitbull Freddy defending the title. Much more concerned with the featherweight Grand Prix. His brother came up with the great idea for why do we not have an interim lightweight title if my brother's not going to be defending. Now, I don't know if Patricio ever has intentions to go back up to 155, but Patrique wanted that interim title fight. Well, first he was going to square up business with Peter Quilly and handle their personal grudge. A fight that ends in such 
I guess, eyebrow-raising circumstances. It's Pitbull Friday to end the first and second round, getting takedowns, being on top, hacking elbows from Queely. From Queely, cuts open Pitbull, and the doctor stops the fight. And that's when you have controversy because Pitbull would like to have a rematch where Queely feels like this one is done and in the books. It's in the record books. It's in the past. We've taken care of business. I can understand both arguments. Pitbull stands there and says, it was a cut. I would have kept fighting. You did not stop me. There was still a lot of fight left in me, and that doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. That was a bad stoppage. On the other side, when you hear Quilly, that a medical professional deemed it unsafe for Pitbull to continue after the beating and damage that incurred from what I did to him. You like the spin on words. You could say both things. The fight was stopped just because it was a cut. Just because there was some blood near my eye, that doctor was playing it way too safe. I cut you open and caused enough damage that a medical professional deemed it unsafe for this bout to continue. I won the fight. Pitbull, you did not win the fight. And Bellator agrees with Pitbull. When you look at the new top 10 rankings and 155 pounds for Bellator, Quilly, who is not in the rankings, jumps in at number 6, where Pitbull falls to 2. It's still great that in a loss in the Bellator rankings, the loser can still be ranked ahead of the winner. But I got to be honest with you. If the doctor deems it unsafe to continue. That's a pretty solid TKO in my book, and I am in a firm belief that there should be more Dr. Stoppage TKOs, a lot more testing, a lot more numbers tests for can you really see through that poked eye, and some kind of check by the doctor between rounds for fighters that have been knocked down multiple times in a round. I fail to believe that after three knockdowns or something that a fighter is not medically concussed. And I'm just thinking in the echelon of safety, live to fight another day. It is a tragedy that there is so much financial implications. The doctor doesn't want to stop the fight. The ref doesn't want to stop the fight. Why? Because the promoter has made it that the loser makes less money than the winner. So everyone attached is financially responsible for causing that fighter to A, make less money, and B, possibly have a faster, larger medical bill. That's why you have to solidly negotiate and again argue about a flat pay rate. So there's a lot that I wanted to touch on from last weekend. A lot of craziness that went on. Michael Venom Page last weekend smashed Derek Anderson's nose, basically flat across his skull. Nothing against MVP, an incredible striker. Nothing against you obviously know something bad's coming from this one, but I do not see a title shot automatically in his future. That was a win over a lower ranked fighter. So if it's just me, 
I'm making Venom Page go through Neiman Gracie. I'm making him go through Logan Storley. I'm making him go through somebody else in the top five before the title fight against the winner of Yaroslav Amoslav and Douglas Lima. I do believe that's going to be Douglas Lima. I do believe that you need a better quality opponent from Michael Venom Page. He's had such a great run, a memorable run, a spectacular highlight reel run in Bellator. But you've never really felt that he's fought the best in Bellator. I mean, can somebody find me Andre Korshakov and have him take on Michael Venipage? I think that's the fight I'm looking for is Andre Korshakov, a two-time former champion of the welterweight division there in Bellator in his own rank. We're looking for a quality win from Michael Venipage. Sorry to rain on the parade, even though he's must-see TV every time he's there in the Bellator cage. Also, as I skipped a weekend, Marina Rodriguez, Rodriguez on short notice won a grueling decision against Michelle Watterson. That five-round fight where the strawweights jumped up to flyweight to give us a UFC main event. And with the incredible Muay Thai striking that Rodriguez displays selfishly, I just want to see her fight Yana and Jacek next. So if we can all band together on the internet to let the UFC know that's what we want to see at 115, I think it'd be a great idea. I know that Yana Champion, well, she's doing a lot of media, a lot of celebrity stuff, a lot of stuff to build her credibility as a celebrity and post-fighting career in Poland. She was hoping for a title fight. I don't see that in the crystal ball. Magic 8-Ball says, no, you've already lost to Thug Rose two times. So that would mean you got to get back to that drawing board. And a Muay Thai fighter versus a Muay Thai fighter just sounds awesome to me. Brandon Moreno, or excuse me, Alex Moreno defeats Donald Cowboy Cerrone. The UFC has said they're going to give Cerrone one more chance at 55 Cerrone said he had wanted to be back down at 55 and was just taking a fight at 70 because it was going to be a grudge match with Diego Sanchez and didn't want to lose out on all the game gains from a camp, didn't want to make all the suffering worthless, wanted to make it worthwhile, the camp that he had went through, and unfortunately another setback. So where does that leave Donald Cerrone? To me, it puts him in an interesting spot and if it's going to be his last time that we see him in the UFC I got some kooky ideas I know that they both trained together back in the day at the old Jackson's gym but I'm not sure what kind of relationship or level Clay Guida and Donald Cerrone are on that's one idea I know that Cerrone's fought Jim Miller before but they're both veterans we would love to see it again heck I could even throw out Bobby Green a guy that said he's never gotten the big opportunity. He's the longtime veteran of the sport. It's a, ve a veteran name, even though there's some young guys. A lot of young guys out there would like this opportunity. Build their name, get that clout, and be able to do it off of the Cerrone name. I'd much rather see a veteran versus veteran, two old gunslingers, if it's going to be a last hurrah for the Cowboy. This past weekend... That was two weekends ago. This past weekend was the UFC 262. And my gosh, has it been a quick fall for Tony Ferguson. Ferguson, in that same 
position Cerrone's in where the UFC is trying to Anderson Silva them out the door. Thank you for the service. A lot of blood spilled, but your time has passed you by. Father time has caught up to you. Still ranked at number seven, but falling. You want to look at the rankings to see what could possibly be next for Tony Ferguson. Diego Fajardo is just coming off of a loss, had a struggle missing weight. I think Drew Dober is looking for something. Tiago Moises is busting into the top 15, and he's going to be fighting Islam Makachev. So the loser of that fight could be a viable opportunity. I know that Michael Chandler is coming off of a loss, but I don't think we see Cerrone in that light at this point. Or even a Ferguson. I don't know what I would want to do with either one of those guys. I think that as we look at Ferguson, a Dan Hooker, a Paul Felder, it's a one last hurrah, and I'm kind of not liking the names. It's going to be a weird feeling, but even looking at the top 15 and the Tony Ferguson that we've seen in the Octagon the last couple times, and I kind of feel that if you gave him a guy outside of the rankings, it wouldn't be the worst thing ever. Well, on the other side, we had the main event, Charles Oliveira. He gets stung, dives in on a takedown, is stuck in a guillotine, pops out, gets Chandler's back. I think it's game set match right there. Chandler escapes. He's landing the power punches. He gets on top. It's vicious ground and pound to end that first round. Second round, left hook. There it is. Tied as change. Right hand, right hand. Escaping out to the left is, or escaping out to his right is Michael Chandler. And there comes the cutting off of the octagon by Charles Oliveira and a left hook meeting the jaw of Michael Chandler. And down goes Iron Mike Do Bronx with the ground and pound. And your new UFC lightweight champion of the world, who is immediately announced as an underdog to the first two most likely title challengers. Everybody already expects it. UFC 264, the main event is Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier, and the winner will be the first one to challenge Oliveira for that lightweight title. And the people in the know in Las Vegas already have hypothetically put the Bronx as the underdog in either matchup. He hasn't hit that ass echelon. I guess there hasn't been credibility with the Kevin Lee, with the... Michael Chandler victories with the Tony Ferguson win. I think the questions have been answered. We know about the jiu-jitsu. We know about the technical ability. Oh, he got stung on the feet. But a good sign was being able to eat that Michael Chandler power, proving that Oliveira has more of a chin than I expected. I really didn't expect him to be able to eat as many power shots as he did. And that adds another toughness and level of grit into the Oliveira statistics and attributes that I didn't know was there. Do I predict a long, dominant championship brain? I don't know, because this division is full of monsters. But it's going to be fun, and it's already been fun, to see that childlike joy. And oh, real quick, guys. Cage Minds MMA show on YouTube. Check it out, and I can't believe I'm so embarrassed. I said that. Oliveira's win on the show. I'm going to make fun of myself. I said it was rememberable. No, it's memorable. My bad. I, I can't believe I said it. It's memorable. To see that childlike joy, that real-life enthusiasm, I couldn't be more elated for Do Bronx, and I can't wait to see what happens when he faces 
Dustin Poirier or Conor McGregor in that first title defense? Where does Iron Mike go? Michael Chandler. Well, we know Rafael Dos Anjos is out there looking for a big fight. I would personally love to see Gaethje versus Chandler, and the winner is put right back into title contention. And there's an outside chance with, with that victory over Tony Ferguson. Where does Benil Daryush go? Does he take on Chandler? Does he take on Gaethje? Is he hanging out, hoping that he can possibly get the loser of Poirier versus McGregor? I think there's a lot of questions to be answered in that mix. And the one that doesn't make sense for Daryush, but is the odd man hanging out, it's Rafael Dos Anjos, but RDA and Benil, very close, were training partners, even though they're not together at King's MMA anymore. I don't think that's really a viable fight to make, and it'd just be from the UFC point of view, needing to kind of convince these guys, you wouldn't need to really want to go down that path. It's not financially worth it, they're not big enough names to draw you in. And also, we got to touch on it. Edson Barbosa Jr. with the most scary knockout we've ever seen. The right hook, that's the delayed reaction that Shane Burgos looks to eat, be fine. Then the floor starts turning into lava, moving on him. He can't find the ground, falls to the ground, then turns over flat out cold. MMA is a dangerous sport. Some of these effects will be long-term. And if I'm in the Burgos camp, he's a big 145-er, I'd be trying to get a test fight up at 155 just to see because he's a very large dude and I don't think it would be that much of a disadvantage to go up 10 pounds. Well, on the other side, Edson Barbosa looks like he has found his weight class, was never able to handle the pressure. He'd either mentally fatigue or physically break down to a boxer's pressure, and this time he was able to absorb and overcome. With the impending and appears retirement of Zabit Magomed Shedapov, you would now have to say, I want to see Edson Barbosa versus Yair Rodriguez. That would be the craziest striking match I can think of. Too bad we never got to see that Rodriguez versus uh, Magomed Shedapov fight take place. New champion, we know where he's going. Chandler with a lot of options that are really fun. Daryush, a few less champions, probably still has to have another big win to really get that name. Barbosa deserves a big name. Get well soon to Jacare Souza on the broken arm, suffered in that armbar loss to Andre Muniz. Visit cageminds.com. Love my website. Put a lot of work into it. Trying to do what I can to keep you guys up to date on everything going on in the world of MMA. Keep up with Cage Minds across social media. On Twitter, it's at Cage Minds MMA. That's the original. On Facebook, it's Cage Minds Combat Sports News. And on Instagram, it's at Cage Minds underscore CSN. And don't forget... It will be back. We're not on right now, but we'll be back in a couple weeks. You can check me out on On the Mic with Mike Adams. That's on 610 AM and 95.9 FM, The Sports Animal in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And you can also check out that show on sportsanimalabq.com. Thanks for listening.